Zechariah, the 14th chapter, this will be the 11th lesson. This will be the final lesson in Zechariah. Last week we kind of got caught up on some stuff and uh, didn't make it through, and that's perfectly all right. We want to be, be flexible that way in order to uh, cover and touch on the issues and see some things, some interesting things I want to point out tonight with the last, last of it. We're looking at the millennial kingdom or that, dear, that age, and I want to ask a question of you before we go too far into it. I want to ask you, do it, how, can I, how can I phrase this? Is rain a natural occurrence on the planet Earth? Is rain a natural occurrence on planet Earth? Is it something that just happens no matter, it's just going to happen, that there's nothing that can be done to stop it or nothing? I'm not sure exactly how I'm wanting to ask this question. I think you'll see as we get into it what I'm trying to point to and some of the things that I want to say about it. If, uh, if it is natural and God withholds that, what does that say? What's the moral implication there? How does that, how does that make us feel? Or what does it make us think about God when we look at that? And just kind of ponder on that for a minute. Sure, around we'll be to that pretty quick. But uh, let's just go ahead and read in Zechariah chapter 14. We're just going to read the last few verses, starting at verse 16. Amen. So it's just a few verses here. Uh, that we're going to cover tonight, but if you'll notice, there's a lot into it. But just to point out, it's always talking about, and it shall come to pass, or in that day, that we're talking about events that were at least for the time of this writing, a future event, something that was going to come. And I'm going to tell you now, I believe that these are things that are still to come. I believe that as we look through this, we're talking about that millennial reign, the time after Jesus Christ comes back to earth to set up his thousand years of reign here on earth. The uh, idea of a millennial reign is not a new idea. It's not something that was only discussed or only found in the Bible, but it was something, or in the New Testament, but it's something that is discussed and found in the Old Testament as well. And uh, this is one of those scriptures that points toward it. There's a lot of other reference scriptures that we have that we could have looked at and uh, bring back to memory on this. A lot of the minor prophets that we've already covered have hit issues concerning the millennial kingdom and the millennial reign. And they talk about in that day, they talk about the restoration of Israel. They talk about Israel being set up as rulers or judges over the nations. It talks about that time of peace, that time, uh, well, when the lamb will lay down with the lion and all these different things. Um, Isaiah put it in Isaiah chapter 2 as we, as you look on down and chapter uh, 66 that the the weapons or the sword would be beat into plowshares and you know just different things a time of peace a time of uh, well with God ruling the world but notice first it tells us that every nation that is left you know every nation that remains and, and this is an interesting thing because not every nation is going to be able to make that transition from the time that we're living at now, the church age, into that millennial age, that millennial kingdom. There's going to be nations that stop existing, that they, they don't make the transition over. In fact, it would be easy enough to start naming some of those if we think about even like what's going on in the world today. There are nations that their sole purpose or sole desire is to stamp out the nation of Israel. We see that in Iraq. We see that with uh, like Hamas and some of the things that are going on. Uh, it's unlikely that some of these nations will make it over into the new kingdom. We think that the political landscape of the world, in our modern-day mentality, that the political landscape is pretty well set. And, and we at least live some, some stability in our life or have a sense of stability in our life, thinking that this is the way it's going to be. 
But if history teaches us anything, it teaches us that nations can be toppled over in just a very short amount of time. That it doesn't take a long time for a great power to become a, well, even a third world nation or just go out of existence altogether. As you read through the book of the Bible, as different books of the Bible, you see nations who were great empires, who were great, uh, you know, powerful nations. And in, over just a, a very small amount of time, they disappear into the history books. They just disappear in existence altogether, that they no longer exist. And this is the same thing that will happen during that day. There's going to be some nations that are going to be stamped out. There's going to be some nations that are going to be completely done away with. And uh, the Lord is saying the ones that are left, though, these nations are going to come every year in order to bring a tribute unto the Lord. They're going to come to Jerusalem uh, in, uh, in order to bring uh, that uh, recognition to Christ. Isaiah chapter 2, as I said, and it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted, uh, exalted above all the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. And many people shall go and uh, say, Come ye, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares uh, plow, plow, plow and their spears into prune hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall thou uh, learn more war anymore. You know, you read this. This is prophecy that is pretty common. It's things that we've heard, uh, certainly when we're studying the book of Revelation or Ezekiel or Daniel. Uh, you, you see, you turn to this type of prophecies. You hear about these things. Also in chapter 66, you see the same thing. It's interesting uh, in the book of Isaiah that you find this reference in chapter 2 and then also in 66. How many has ever heard the expression that Isaiah is like a mini Bible? that it parallels the Bible in a lot of ways, you know, with 66 chapters uh, corresponding to 66 different books in the Bible. Uh, the chapters pretty well follow. If you look at some of the Old Testament chapters uh, going up to uh, the New Testament, you see that separation between the age of the law and the age of the grace, and there's also a very similar se uh, separation in Isaiah, uh, what is it, 37, I think, is, is the 37 books of the Old Testament? I think that's right. Uh, but you see that separation there at the 38th chapter of Isaiah, you kind of have a little bit of a switch. So a, a lot of it is very, uh, very much a picture. So here you have at the beginning of Isaiah and also at the very end of Isaiah, this prophecy of the millennial kingdom or the second coming of Christ. Well, we have the same thing in the, in the Bible, you know, as we look at it as a whole. Uh, the book of Jude told us that in the book of Genesis, the, the Enoch prophesied of the second coming. And, of course, we have the book of Revelation. So, you know, it's just it's an interesting thing to me that the nations will be coming and they will be uh, presenting themselves before the Lord. They'll be learning from him. They'll be putting their trust and faith in him. But not all nations, not all people are going to do that. It's uh, an amazing thing to think that God will be able to establish his kingdom here on earth. But there's still going to be people who are going to outright reject him and disobey and go against his will and... Uh, you know, not follow after him. One of the things that they are going to observe during that last time in the millennial kingdom is the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, how many feasts can we think of? If I were to ask the question, how many feasts were prescribed under the law that they had to, that they had to observe? Seven. 
Anybody know? Well, there are at least three. There's actually seven that's under the law. They kind of run together, though. You have uh, the Passover. That's probably one of the three. That's one of the big three. There, there's three main ones that we talk about. You have the Feast of Passover, the Feast of Pentecost, and the Feast of Tabernacles. That's probably the three more prominent ones that we have. But there is also the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. That is actually on the next night after the Passover. And then you have the fe a Feast of the First Fruit. Um, it's the next morning uh, after that. So you have three of them right there back to back. And then you have the Feast of the Passover, or the P Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of the Trumpets. Uh, that's uh, commemorating when uh, Joshua and the walls of Jericho fell. The Feast of Atonement, the fire offering that was given. And then the Feast of Tabernacle was the last one that was given. So why is it when we look at these different feasts, the only one that is observed at this time is the Feast of Tabernacles? Anyone have any question or any uh, thought on that well let's just take the main ones the feast of passover and the feast of pentecost the feast of passover what did it represent or what was it a picture of when they were leaving egypt but it was a symbolic picture what did they do at the feast of the passover the very first one remember they killed the calf and or the uh, sheep they took the blood and wiped it over the doorpost. What's that, what's that a picture of? Messiah, Christ Jesus coming back. We, that's a picture of uh, Jesus going to the cross at Calvary. Well, then when we look at the, uh, past, uh, the, uh, the Feast of Pentecost, what was it a feast for? It was a feast commemorating the giving of the law. Well, the Feast of Tabernacle was a feast to commemorate their time in the wilderness journey headed toward the Promised Land and the time that they dwelt in tents. And one of the reasons that they celebrate or they still observe the time of the tents or time of that is the other two have been fulfilled. When Jesus came, he fulfilled the law. So the law was until him. And then he fulfilled every aspect of the law. Well, the fat feast of Passover was a picture of Jesus Christ. There's no sense in or there's no reason to have that after he already comes because we have the completed picture of that. So the one that's looking back at that time uh, during their journey is the Feast of Tabernacles. And so uh, for us as the Gentile nations that would also uh, celebrate that or enjoy that, it's a time for us to reflect at what we've been in and where we've come from. You know, as Christians, we should from time to time in our lives look back at some of the things that we went through, some of the different things that we've come from in our lives and not forget those. We should not let those lessons uh, fall away to the wayside. We should always remember, it, it's uh, one of the old expressions that we would say in the country is not to get above a raisin. Anybody ever hear that? Or not too big for our britches? What's some of the others that we'd have for that? But basically what we're saying when people's got too big for their raising is they forgot where they've come from. They forgot that they were at one time sinners, that they were one time traveling around in the wilderness that they were one time lost and it took the power of God to redeem us and draw us back so we still want to look back and to see that and I think that's one of the reasons for the Passover or for the uh, the celebration of the uh, uh, feast of unleavened bread or uh, feast of tabernacles I'm sorry in verse 17 it shall come to pass that whosoever will not come up to the uh, up to the families of the earth and to the Jerusalem to worship king uh, worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall no rain. So this is really kind of getting to the question that I, I wish I could express this in the way that I, I want to. Sometimes I have a very difficult time of getting it out the way that I, I feel about it. And it it's just the, the words escape me. And I'm not trying to say anything too awful controversial today. But th going back to the question that I ask, well, first of all, is there any questions on the first part? Uh, the Pentecost. 
That was your three main ones. And like I said, you also have the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of the First Fruits, the Feast of Trumpets, uh, the Feast of the Atonement, and that was the other of the seven, the other four there. Any other questions, comments? Any other questions or comments on the first section here? Now let's talk about the rain for a minute. So the question I ask, is rain a natural occurrence on the earth? How many says yes? How many says no? Well, let me ask it another way. When the earth was originally created, was there a rain? No. When did rain start when did when did rain start to come? With Noah. So a thousand years, eleven hundred years or so passed from the time of Adam to the time of Noah that there was no rain upon the earth, that it had never sprinkled the first drop, that water would come up in a mist out of the ground, and that was what would water the crops. That's what would take care of all things. Now, like I said, I'm not trying to build new doctrines. I'm just trying to change our perception about some things. Because sometimes I think that we get the wrong idea about this. Because if God is withholding something that is natural, amen, then that could be viewed as a very negative thing, right? How many has ever heard of a, the mentality of you owe me? That I have the right to this. I'm going to cross over a political line tonight. I get frustrated with our politicians. I'm a pastor. I served in the United States Navy. I enjoyed that. I, I try to serve my family at home. I'm not always good at it, but I try to uh, be a good husband and father. I understand what servitude means. I, I try to live that life. When I listened to our politicians, I heard one here the other day. I'll just tell you who it was. It was John Kerry. He was talking about the prime minister, the president of Iraq, and he said that the right to rule a nation doesn't come with torture. And I thought there was something about that statement that just struck me as wrong. He said the right to rule a nation. And I thought, does anybody really have the right to rule a nation, or is it a privilege to rule the nation? You know, it's a privilege to serve in public office. It's a, pri a privilege to serve in that capacity. And I think that a lot of the problem that we have with our politicians today is they have this right mentality, this uh, you owe me mentality, as opposed to I'm your servant mentality. The reason I say that is sometimes we look at things as we have the right to that. When we're talking about the rain, and if God's withholding something that we have the right to, then he's withholding something good from us, right? Well, if you look at it in this way, and just kind of think about it, that if the earth wasn't created to have rain, and rain came as a blessing after the flood took place, then it's God who allows it to rain on the just as well as the unjust. Now, Matthew chapter 5, verse 45 I put that in your outline. I put this straight from the King James. It says that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven, for he maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. Notice how that's written. He sends the rain on the just and the unjust. So it's not God withholding, but a God allowing these blessings to flow. So when we look at this during this millennial kingdom and the rain stops, I want us to understand that this is more God allowing blessings upon nations who are pleasing to him instead of putting his blessings on nations that are not pleasing. No person living in contrary to God's law 
or God's word is entitled to God's blessings. Does that make sense? I don't want to say that again. No person living contrary to the word of God or God's will is entitled to God's blessings. Now, we have certain things that God has given to us, and he, we can live in those. But when it comes to the blessings of God, I think that we need to change our mindset that, that God is the one that's allowing the rain to come. In the Old Testament, when the rain was stopped, it wasn't that God was necessarily stopping the rain and keeping something unnatural from happening, but he was preventing his blessing from going out to a certain place. And I think that when we start to view things that way, it changes our mindset about it. Because if we just say that he punishes those nations by withholding rain, we could get a very negative idea about that. But I don't think that that's necessarily the idea that we need to have about it. But if we say that God is withholding his blessings from people who are disobedient, then that changes it, doesn't it? Does that make sense, what I'm trying to say? Like I said, I, I wish that I could say it more the way I feel it in here. And it just seems to fall off short, somewhere between here and here. Does that make sense? Anyway, any questions or anybody would like to speak to that? I, bl I believe that blessings can be also that physical water that is needed, though. Uh, you know, as a child, I used to view verse uh, chapter 5 and verse 45 of Matthew in the very negative context. As a child, I think, well, he sends rain on the just as well as the unjust. After all, the unjust deserve the rain, right? Those kids don't need to get out and play. They're unjust. I'm just telling you, I mean, seriously, that's the way I felt about it. it. It was a negative statement. But as an adult, I come to realize that this is a positive statement, that he sends rain on the unjust as well as the just, because how important is rain to us? So he allows that. That's going to people who don't even deserve it, but because of his grace, because of his mercy, he allows it to happen. Brother David, was you wanting to say something as well? Exactly. And you know, by, by us changing our perspective of that, we start to see it a little bit different. Then it's not him withholding good, but it's him in a, or giving good to those who are in accordance with his will. I want to ask it this way, just kind of, uh, kind of the same thing Brother David was saying there. How many of us in here have kids? How many of us have ever let our kids ride a bicycle? Go ahead and stick your hands up. Right, most of us. Or how many of us have ever had children in our lives we helped them to ride a bicycle? Almost every one of us, right? Did you not know that when they got on that bicycle they were going to wreck and scratch their knees? Did you make them scratch their knees or did you just give them the opportunity? We, we provided the opportunity. It, it's not that we got the kids out there and just pushed them down in order to scratch their knees, but we allowed that to happen so they could grow and know how to ride a bicycle, grow their muscles strong, and to learn to do that. Now, I know that analogy falls way short of what God is toward us, but it's the difference between us forcing something bad and allowing something bad. In the same way with God, it's the difference between him making something bad happen or allowing something bad to happen. When he removed his protection from the nation of Israel, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Mede Persians, the Romans, the Grecian, the Nazis, uh, and modern day anti Semitic types are against the nation of Israel because he's with moved, removed his protection on them. Not because he's forcing the bad people to do bad things to Israel, but because he allows that very nature to take place. And I think that uh, when we look in that millennial kingdom, that Really, like I said, going back to the idea of rain, it's a matter of the way that we view it and the way that we perceive it as whether it's evil or whether it's righteous in our sight. 
We know that it's righteous. We know that God is righteous. And as Brother David says, he doesn't do it. It doesn't become righteous because he does it. He does it because it is the righteous thing to do. And uh, God allowing rain to come on the nations who are in accordance with his will is completely within his purview or his uh, ability to do that. Anyway, any other questions or comments on that part? That was just something that kind of hit me, and I, I hope that I didn't make it too awful murky. Or, and there is penalty for sin. In fact, if you continue reading to follow through with what Brother David is saying here, look over at verse 19. After he talks about Egypt, and he mentions Egypt specifically two times here. Um, now, other places in the Bible, he uses the name Egypt not always as a direct representation toward the nation of Egypt, but as a metaphor for other nations. And I think the same can be said here, that it's more of a metaphor for other nations than it is for Egypt itself. Egypt specifically needed the rain because of the Nile. The Nile, the flooding of the Nile during the uh, springtime was very crucial or instrumental to their whole survival. But the reason he mentions Egypt here is really uh, talking about not just Egypt, but all nations that don't come. Verse 19, when it says, This shall be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all nations, the word punishment there is literally the same word that we find in other places that is translated to sin. So it's not necessarily just talking about him executing judgment upon them, but the sin that they are committing, the, uh, the idea that they're not willing to come up and pay tribute unto him and to honor him as king of kings and lord of lords. So anyway, that's why we see a lot of that. Moving on, go ahead, Brother David. So it's, uh, and I still, uh, with what, what Brother David is saying here, I, I agree with that, that, you know, a lot of times it's just the natural process of what goes on on this fallen planet that we fall victim to. And it's not that God is forcing it on us, but he's allowing it to come on us because of the world that we live in. Anyway, I want to move on because we are going to finish this tonight. Holiness to the Lord. As we get into the last two verses, in that, in that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord, and the pots in the Lord's house shall be likened to the bowls before the altar. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judea shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And they all... and. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and seeth them therein. And in that day there shall be no more Canaanites in the house of the Lord of hosts. What it's talking about here as far as the holiness engraved on the bells of the horses, holiness unto the Lord. In the Old Testament, uh, Exodus chapter 28, the priest, the high priest on his garments, on the bells, on the garment, or on the apron, it was uh, engraved the same thing. In fact, I wrote that verse down there. You can read that. But it's talking about that was dedicated unto the Lord. In the Old Testament, under the tabernacle, in the temple, there were certain items that was dedicated unto the house of God. Now, we could have, usually I have 15 pins up here. I've got one tonight. I need two. But we could have two identical items, and we could dedicate one unto the house of the Lord, and we could take one home. Now, under the tabernacle, they had to have knives that were dedicated to the temple service. That was all they were going to be used for. It was going to be used for temple service. But the knife itself was no different other than the gold utensils and things like that than the ones that would have been used in ordinary homes. Well, what it's saying here is during that millennial kingdom, not just the pots and stuff that are used during that service, but every pot, every horse, 
Everything is going to be dedicated to the Lord. It's all his anyway. And at that time frame, everything is going to be dedicated to him. So it's not just like this class or this group of people are going to be dedicated, but everything under the sun is dedicated to the Lord at that point in time. In fact, Paul wrote about that to us in Romans chapter 12 when he tells us, you know, Brethren, I beseech you by the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable unto the Lord, which is your reasonable service. You know, this is something that he wants us to do in and of ourselves. As Christians, we should already be living this. Everything that we have should be dedicated to God, to use as he would see fit. I know I told the story about Bruce Wilkerson having the Mont Blanc pen. I wanted a Mont Blanc pen after I heard the story for the longest time because it was really nice. It's a nice, I have written with one one time. It's a really nice, smooth writing pen, and I'm glad that I learned to make pens for myself. That way I've got what I need now. But I remember just wanting it. Anyway, Bruce Wilkerson wanted one for a long time and started to covet it, and he bought one finally, a very expensive pen. And uh, when he was at a store, he just felt the Spirit tell him to give this to this guy that, was, uh, that said he'd always wanted one too. And at the very moment that he said no to the Lord, he realized that that pen was no longer a pen, but it had become an idol to him and took the place of God. Anything that we say no to over uh, to God for over it is become an idol to us, and it's taken the place of God. And we need to be very careful. Well, in the book of uh, Zechariah here at the end, he's saying that everything is dedicated unto the Lord. Well, like I said, as Christians, we should dedicate everything unto the Lord anyway. If we have $10 in our pocket and he says give it to charity, give it to this person or give it to this need, then as Christians, that's what we should do. Uh, from $10 to our house, if the Lord so desires. Now, I'm not saying just go out here and anytime that we uh, have a wild thought, uh, thought to just do it, but nonetheless, if we feel and we know this God's speaking to us, we need to be obedient to that. It goes on to say, in that day there shall be no more Canaanites in the house of the Lord of hosts. A Canaanite literally meant an unclean person or an unholy person. And what he's saying here is in his house, in his service, there's going to be no unclean or unholy person. That the people who are serving there are going to have their hearts cleansed. They're going to be clean before the Lord. Now, are there going to be people there from other nations? Yes. I hope to be there. I hope to be serving with the Lord and, you know, during that time. But nonetheless, it, he's saying that there's not going to be any people there that are unclean. Now, there's still going to be sin in the world. We know that because it tells us that some nations are not going to come up and pay tribute unto him. But there's still going to be some unrighteousness until the final judgment day. But nonetheless, during that millennial kingdom, this is the na uh, nature in which he's going to reign. Everything is going to be his. He's going to require tribute of man. Uh, he's going to rule with an iron fist. They're no longer going to teach war or practice war, but they're going to live according to his law. And if they don't, then there'll be no rain upon their land. There'll be no blessings from God to those nations. Any questions or comments? If not, that'll take care of the book of Zechariah. We'll be going into the book of Malachi next week.